Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And we are live on tape from Dublin. Today we are talking about... Uh, oh no, it's that man again, Stephen. You can never have too many episodes. Alan Klein. We are talking about Alan Klein again. Now, I thought we did a lot of talking about Alan Klein in the last season. We did, but not enough. <laughs> well, I know you're 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 part of the Alan Klein Defence Fund, and that's your your general role in life. I, I don't know what he's what he's got on you that you feel the need to make the case for Alan Klein. But yes, this is. There were still unopened, uh, unclosed avenues when we when we got to the end of the last set Un- of Alan unexplored Klein. legal and business issues, which is what this podcast is all about. Well, I, I think we made a decision about telling the story, then we kind of diverted down a let it be avenue to kind of seal it off. But the reality is that Alan Klein continues in their lives for many years into the seventies, and we need to try and address what all of that means forever. He's in their lives forever. And do you promise me that this is the end of Alan Klein? On nothing is real. <laughs> I can give you an Alan Klein promise. Oh, right. So, so maybe not. Grant, I, I, an Alan Klein promise isn't worth the paper that it's not written on, probably. Um, so, previously on From Brian to Klein, where were we? We knew that uh, Alan had stuck his oar in in 1969. And for NEMS, what happened? Well, they didn't get control, and I'd like to object to the phrase stuck his oar in. He had come <laughs> along to try and help the boys. Um, they didn't get control of NEMS, but they essentially bought themselves out of the contract, and people can refer back to the episode where I explain it wasn't Brian, uh, uh, Klein's fault that they lost NEMS. Yes, and then uh, Northern Songs, I'm trying to remember if that went well or not. Uh, that did not go well. Uh, that was lost to the Beatles, but they did get lots of cash. But Paul and the Eastmans did turn down the opportunity to get some ATV stock. Mm. The thing that he did do was the royalty rate. Excellent deal. Excellent deal. Signed in September 1969, a significantly heightened royalty rate that basically set the bar for their royalty rate, even through to the present day, you could argue. I think so, yeah. Uh, and then Apple Corps itself. He sacked everybody. <laughs> he sacked everybody, set it on fire, walked away. Um, but basically, it was... it was. Let, let's start maybe with the Apple thing, because the Apple thing... The, it was well known at the time when he arrives in the first quarter of 69 that Apple is eating up money and anybody who would have gotten involved in Apple at that point from any kind of business acumen would have seen, yeah, this is a, a money pit and we need to sort things out. Yeah, and I think that was really the reason why they are looking for someone at this point. You, you know, they've had a period of time without a manager effectively. They set up Apple and then they realize it's just hemorrhaging Money. So I think anyone who was going to come in to fix Apple is going to have to streamline the organization. That's going to mean shutting down various divisions within Apple and getting rid of staff. And I think the important thing is he was doing the Beatles bidding, or at least the Beatles set him off doing this and did not interfere. It is difficult because obviously for the years that Brian was there, and we have touched upon this before, none of this stuff reached John, Paul, George and Ringo. They were living a life where Brian was the gatekeeper and was making, you know, you can argue whether every decision was the right decision, but the main point of every decision I would say that Brian made was to just keep the Beatles beetling, whether it's, you know, initially on the road and then into the studio. That was his job. And then from 1967, after Brian dies, the Beatles kind of open the floodgates, all this crazy stuff happens and they are looking for someone to put the genie back into the bottle, really. Yes, I mean, Brian isolated them from all of this 
And after his death, they just jump right into the middle of it. So suddenly they are having to go to the office. They're having to deal with business matters directly and they don't have a single person in charge or that can can act as a sort of gatekeeper. Now, I know you've seen that video that pops up on YouTube every now and then that then gets taken down, which is the 10-minute Apple promotional film from 1968. Yes. Which is a fascinating bit of footage. And if anybody hasn't seen it, off to your local YouTube saloon and look it up. It is uh, basically a film that was circulated around the world to promote the goodness of Apple. And it's got some interesting footage of Paul on a guitar in Abbey Road doing Blackbird and Helter Skelter. But the really strange parts are you know, John and Paul sitting in offices having meetings with uh, Dick James and they shouldn't really be doing that. No, this isn't what they're good at. No. Um, so John and Paul and George and Ringo all agree, I think, that they need to streamline the organisation. And specifically before uh, John leaves on honeymoon, um, he sits down with Klein in an attempt to to sort of map out a way to rationalise the situation. And uh, Klein, basically his view is everyone is riding the gravy train here. And there is an argument obviously to say they have to get off the gravy train so that Klein can get onto the gravy train. Yes. But John nevertheless is taking a very dim view of what he refers to as sort of parasites, people who were living like kings, mm. like Emperors, emperors. <laughs> yes. um, because of the Beatles' deep pockets. Now, this is categorically, demonstrably not the case. They have a number of people in the inner circle, Mal Evans being one of them, who is on a pitifully small wage at yeah. this point. And, you know, they are definitely not living like kings. Uh, Neil Aspinall has been there from the beginning. And, uh, you know, at one point he is offered the job of running Apple, but turns it down. Mm. But I, I don't think either... Neil or Mal falls into this parasite category that Lennon uh, identifies. And to some extent, that's probably why they escape the axe, although Klein, not for want of trying. Well, he does He does cut away a lot of people who, you know, are kind of famous in Beatle biography and Beatle lore. Mm. And yeah, there's an argument as to whether they were valuable members of staff or not. What There certainly was a value in that you could argue they added to the culture of the yep. place. But yeah, Magic Alex getting the boot, that's fine. He's got nothing to show for himself. No. Um, Dennis O'Dell, who, you know, was in charge of the film division. Um, Tony Bramwell, but Alistair Taylor, who'd been there since day one in the cavern with Brian. Yeah, Alistair Taylor has literally been there since day one. He accompanies uh, Brian Epstein to the cavern when mm. Brian sees him in the cavern for this first time. Peter Brown talks about this in his book and he said, he, Alistair, had been with us since 1962. He was an honourable employee through all those years. Paul's gopher, his mate, whenever any of the boys needed something done, Alistair already saw to it. It was terrible, terrible having to do this was the worst. Yet Peter Brown was prepared to do it. And the notion was that they should, I think quite rightly too, focus on music, get rid of the film, get rid of the electronics yeah. and all this. And as you say, all of this is set up before John goes off on his honeymoon with Yoko. So it would have been an interesting verse to the ballad of John and Yoko, you know, fired Magic Alex and Dennis O'Dell and whatever you want That's to say. That's the missing verse. That is the, missing, the missing verse. verse. <laughs> Finally streamlined the things at Apple, whatever, honeymooning yeah. down by the Seine, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's, I think it's the streamlining of Apple is probably the main thing that gives Klein his bad reputation um, because he just changes the culture of Apple from being this uh, hippy-dippy, you know, everything's free, everybody's hanging out, everybody's having a good time to suddenly he is there shutting stuff down and turning it into a business. But that's what they needed and that's what they wanted. But the alternate argument is that this is, you could say, a version of coercive control of a relationship where he steps in and gets rid of the people who are conduits to the Beatles. And so he is the man in control. They have no other option then except to go through Alan and to deal with Alan. Yeah. I mean, undoubtedly, I think that there's an element of that, that he sees himself as that conduit, uh, that, that he's, he is Brian's replacement. Yeah. So therefore, he is getting rid of people who are longstanding advisors and gophers, Alistair Taylor being the example. But... Alistair Taylor in his book does recount the fact that none of them will take his call. Paul, with whom he is closest, will not take his call the day that he is fired. Um, you know, it's a complete shutdown. So even Paul is on board with, we've got to, we've got to rationalise, we've got to save money, we've got to streamline the organisation. So what we got into at the end of the last season was that 
when they have this negotiation of a royalty deal in September before Abbey Road hits the racks, unfortunately, you know, you could argue that he's, you know, won the battle or lost the war or whatever the, yeah. the analogy is, That because the Beatles are now not active recording artists anymore. And Klein goes off on this mission to try and get Let It Be onto the shelves because that is a, a brand new Beatles recording that can generate cash. It's all about generating money. And we said at the end of those episodes that their financial income in 1970 was a whole different world away from their financial income in 1968. So, you know, from that metric alone, you could say, yep, he did what he was supposed to do. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think from a purely financial point of view, um, it is a huge success. The band does not exist anymore in the sense of a a recording outfit. Um, But the money is coming in. The money is being generated. And again, you're back to this point that when did the Beatles actually split up? Yep. You know, we'll see, we come on to sort of interviews that are being given 1970, 1971, 1972. Each member is sort of saying, well, we could get back together. We could get into a studio. We could do this. But I think his tactic of, you know, if I get John on board, the rest will follow. Yeah. Backfired. So we're at this point in May 1970 where Let It Be is released, the movie and the album. McCartney's McCartney album has come out the previous month with the famous um, press release that essentially signals to the world that the Beatles have split and we could spend an hour or two discussing that press release, shall we? No, let's not. Um, but, you know, Alan Klein is still in charge and he's 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 on a, a contract that's due to mm. run out and it's 1973 that he's essentially... Yes, so he's, he's, he's there uh, until 1973. So what he does is he shifts his focus to the solo careers and he's very determined to promote George as a solo artist, to promote John and to assist Ringo. And Ringo, initially, it's films is what he's uh, interested in. And ultimately, we'll see that, you know, John starts to resent Klein focusing on George, perhaps a little bit too much. And uh, those jealousies and those rivalries start to surface. But he is focused on the three that stuck with him. And it's worth keeping in the back of the mind this notion that John wants to get the attention. Because it could be argued that when Brian was in charge, John got the attention or John was the, the, the draw for Brian or there certainly was a very personal relationship between John and Brian and, and, and you know, you can get into the armchair psychology of father figures and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But there is a bit of truth in that. No, absolutely. And uh, it's difficult to see how Paul would not have been slightly resentful of that or certainly very conscious of that. You know, even going back to the early days where, you know, that famous story where Paul stays in the bath rather yes. than come to a meeting and they say, well, he's late, but he'd be very clean, etc. So he's, he's, Paul is disrupting there for, for no apparent reason. You know, this is a big deal. They've got a manager. This is a big break. And Paul decides just not to go to the meeting. And there is this suggestion that we touched on in the last season about when Klein's name is first mentioned. Who is it that says to the press, oh, uh, you know, the Beatles, some of two of the Beatles have been in touch with Klein. Mm-hmm. And it is Paul that throws Klein up to, to Brian Epstein. Uh, so, you know, why can't you get us a deal like that? So there is a slightly disruptive thing there. And you could see, Paul just will see this happening again. There's a new manager. He's John's man. But through to the present day, Paul has never been shy of, you know, knowing his own worth and demanding it from people. Mm. You know, there's stories over the years of, you know, producers couldn't take holidays and, you know, you know, it's not exactly don't you know who I am typism, but he's he's sort of, he believes that he has capital from his success and from his talent and his ability. Yeah. And he wants to use that as leverage. And I don't think that's an unreasonable thing. Then you get the example, for example, of many years from now, mm-hmm. where he gets the lion's share, the considerable, it's a big lion, and he gets <laughs> the big share of the book that Barry Miles is writing. Yeah. Well, yeah, but it is kind of his book, isn't it? No? Well, is it? Is it a biography? It, it does, you know, when it doesn't cover an awful lot of post-1970 if it's not a biography. Um, so let's look at Alan Klein, post-Let It Be, interacting with the solo Beatles. And probably the most straightforward relationship is the one with Ringo. Yeah. So Ringo wants to be an actor. Okay. Simple as. He's already done some acting. Uh, I believe, let me just check the notes here. Yes, the films of Ringo Starr. Film, we can, we the can, films of Ringo Starr. There's going to be a lot of cross-referencing in this episode because we tiptoe across some other topics that we've, we've come to before. But um, yeah, Ringo has already decided, you know, he's he's made the 
highest grossing film of 1968, Candy. No, I don't know. It wasn't. No, no, I don't think anybody saw it. But Ringo is a movie star and that's what he wants to do. The all-round entertainer, Ringo. Yes, so Klein sets him up uh, with the film Blind Man. Have you seen Blind Man yet? You have, I don't think you have seen no, it. No, I haven't. And it's, it's uh, I've seen the clips and the trailers and I, I get its general vibe. It's a gritty, one of these kind of European westerns. Spaghetti westerns. Yeah. I've only seen it in Italian. That's that's the best way to it see it. It is the best way, yeah. even if, like me, you don't speak Italian. Yeah. It's you a... get the gist. You can get the gist. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so he, he, in 1971, Ringo was filming Blind Man and they write a little part into the film for Klein. And he's, yeah, so Alan's in it for about a minute or two. And yeah. that means that Alan Klein and Ringo are hanging out on set like good old pals. Yes. So uh, they, they give an interview. Uh, and it's essentially an interview that Klein is giving uh, to Craig Vetter. And that appears in your November 1971 issue of Playboy. I'll just put it on the table here. There it is. Very good. We Thank can rely you. on you. <laughs> And let me just flick through the right page. Um, so it's, it's an interesting it, interview. It's very interesting interview. So they're on set uh, in Spain making yep. the uh, spaghetti western. I don't know how that but, works. But, but I think we touched upon this before because, you know, How I Won the War is also filmed yep. near Almeria in Spain. There is a, in, in this area of Spain, there's a small movie studio set up and, and these kind of productions get made there. You've been there. I have been to Almeria in Spain as a kid, yes. Very good. So what, what Craig Vetter talks about here, he said, you know, they, they uh, are doing this interview with Klein and he said we would scramble in between rehearsals and takes for Ringo's air-conditioned trailer to the tape recorder, my notebooks and some Spanish wine, which I sipped as Klein talked. Klein does not drink. No, he does not. So he just pays attention all the time. <laughs> exactly. I think that's, that's very telling. That is very telling. And in one Do you of trust people who don't drink? No. Oh, okay. Would you like a drink? Uh, I don't drink. Ringo came <laughs> along for two of the long interview sessions. Uh, the journalist says because he wanted to be out of the sun, but because, as he said to Klein, I'd like to hear what you have to say too. So Ringo was there listening in. And uh, Vetter talks about Ringo just sitting, you know, very quietly while Klein answers all the usual questions. And then he says, uh, do you think, to Klein, do you think the Beatles will ever play again? And this is the point at which Ringo intervenes. And he says, you must say yes, Alan, because there's no reason we shouldn't all play together again if we want to. But don't no silly DJs go putting it out that we're thinking of getting together because we're not. Still, there's nothing stopping us if we ever want to. And he refers to the fact that Ringo's eyes are moist at this stage. So mm. Ringo is quite emotional uh, in this. And... I think the truth in a moment like that is, if you think about it, the Beatles were about freedom, doing what they want to do, when they want to do it, and doing it creatively. So what I think you see breaking through in a statement like that is that it shouldn't be the business that decides what happens. We'll do whatever we want to do. John, Paul, George, Ringo. That's that's what it's about. And this is a barrier. And it is a common thread across the early 70s that you know, we'll get rid of all this stuff and the barriers will be gone and we'll be back together again. Yes, I think that, that's it. I mean, they all are referring to the business stuff, the business, the litigation. That's where the acrimony is. And they, they're increasingly at pains to point out sort of from late 1971, early 1972, this is not a personal thing. You know, it gets very personal in 1971, but they, they've sort of moved past this. And uh, this just interestingly, he said, Ringo talked about his first face-to-face meeting with Paul in many months on a plane on the way to Mick Jagger's wedding, which would have been in May, and then said, I love you, Paul. You know, I really do. And for a moment, all the neatly printed legal statements I'd poured over, so formal, signed by all the Beatles, once, one against the other, and entered into the English High Court, numbering the reasons the partnership should or should not be resolved seemed strange and distant. Klein and I taped all week, and we never got much closer to the complicated truth of the affair and at that moment, which is that I love you, Paul, you know, I really do. And it's important to remember the timeline because, of course, Paul issues, as we've mentioned in previous uh, episodes, affidavits on the 31st of December 1970 against John, George and Ringo in order to dissolve the Beatles partnership because of the nature of the contract with Alan Klein. He has to sue them and not Alan Klein. And that, as we mentioned in our RAM episodes, uh, continues into the courts in the spring of 1971. And it does find essentially in Paul's favour. 
And so, yes. well, more or less. You could see the look on my face. I there. could see the look on your face if, if this was a visual podcast. Um, but I, 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 well, I've read an awful lot of books where Paul McCartney says that he did well, the right true. thing. Well, <laughs> what they do is they do appoint a receiver, which yes. is what Paul was looking for. But they do find that there has been no financial impropriety on the part of Klein. That's oh the important God. thing. Paul goes in, Paul and the Eastmans go in arguing that Apple is teetering on the edge of bankruptcy, that it won't have enough money to pay the tax. And the court says this is painfully not true. There is oodles of money, I think is the legal term they use. You know, there's, a, there's lots of money. It's perfectly solvent, but it is so complex. And there has been such a serious breakdown in the sort of trust between yep. the partners that it is appropriate to appoint a receiver. So it's not a receiver appointed for financial reasons. Not for impropriety, but just for almost practical reasons yeah, that really, the relationship yes. is broken down. Yeah. So yeah, so Paul won, that's what I was saying. And, <laughs> anyway, um, but you know, when Ringo starts to interact with Paul again, as you say, at Mick Jagger's wedding, you know, he, he probably had, they probably haven't had any interaction since, you know, Ringo de- delivered the letter yes, over a year yes. beforehand. And it's hard in those instances not to, when you're face to face with people, to remember all the stuff that you'd done before. So well, it, is, it is a little break of light in the relationship. It is. And this is in this is in sort of May, June uh, 1971. The, the interview was published in November 1971. So yeah, it's it's a little chink of light. Um, but the main thing that uh, Klein is involved in in 1971 is George Harrison's universe. And we have done three episodes about All Things Must Pass. We have done two episodes about the concert for Bangladesh. And all of those are very worthwhile. We've done My Sweet Lord episodes and everything else, and they all fill into what was happening here. But when it comes to George and Alan Klein, you do circle back around to the concert for Bangladesh. Yeah. And it's it's bittersweet because you could argue Klein makes it so, but he also botches it. He makes it, you know, he, he didn't do it right. He that, This is true. Yay, a concession. A concession. Oh, I will concede man. this. I'm working so, on my barristerness. Okay, and so I put it to you that Klein was not fit for purpose. Well, I don't know. Oh, damn it. Okay, let's go back Uh, then. But Klein, yeah, so Klein hustles to get everybody together, to get this concert together. The big thing is, again, back to the royalty thing, he he convinces Capital to give 50%, uh, uh, a 50% royalty rate on this album, which is unprecedented. Yeah. Um, So then we get the live album, we get the film, $15 million raised, but Klein had failed to register the shows as a UNICEF charity event. So it was clear that that's what the concert was for, but it wasn't officially, the event was not officially registered as a charity. And as a result, the proceeds were denied tax-exempt status in both Britain and the US. So it's just like a commercial venture and you've got to pay tax on that. And uh, this becomes a huge issue. Yes, So of that $15 million, $10 million is held back for years. And in the UK, George speaks to the then Chancellor of the Exchequer, desperately trying to uh, to, to, to sort of strike a deal. The British government will not play ball. And George ends up writing a cheque to cover the tax so that the money can be released. And, you know, you look at that and you think, well, actually, there wasn't, was there anything in it for Klein? Was he just bad at organising this particular part of the charity that he didn't know what he was doing or he didn't get the right advice to set it up as a proper charity event? I blame the lawyers. <laughs> well, yeah. I suppose you could say uh, Klein, not used to working for charities, perhaps. <laughs> well, yeah, that he didn't really know how to um, do something for for, 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 for someone else. Um, but there is a notion that Klein did pocket money himself on the album. There, There is. I mean, before we even get to that point, this whole issue with the registration attack, this cuts into George's relationship with clients. Up to that point, George had actually had quite a good relationship with Klein. Uh, you, you know, Klein was very focused on getting George to number one, uh, put a lot of effort into that. But yes, this whole sort of financial mismanagement of, of the charitable aspect uh, sars the relationship. Then New York Magazine accused Klein of pocketing $1.14 on each copy of the live album which is priced at $10, so that Klein is actually skimming money yep. uh, off the profit here. And I suppose that's bad enough, but it's seen to be taking money away from refugees and the charitable work. And it's, it's, 
it's a complicated relationship maybe with George and Alan Klein because back in May 1970 when George is doing the demos for you know, the All Things Must Pass, and we, we hear this in the All Things Must Pass box set. Yeah. There's, you know, Beware of Darkness famously has the line, Beware of Abco, you know, yeah. the Alan Betty Klein yeah. company. Um, so he, he he obviously is aware, but as you say, when All Things Must Pass comes out and My Sweet Lord gets to number one, there's this notion, and we know this from 1972 McCartney interviews, which we've discussed elsewhere, that, you know, oh, Alan, you know, John Lennon thinks that Alan Klein has pushed George over the top and has done everything for George and... You know, it's not George's talent that got him there. It's yes. Alan Klein that got him there. Yeah, says Paul. <laughs> okay, says Paul that John said about Alan Klein. Yeah. My God, it is a bit schoolyard. It, it is a bit schoolyard. It's a bit divide and conquer. But yes, it, un- undoubtedly, I mean, what we have to remember is that by the end of 1972, beginning of 1973, George Harrison is king of the world. Oh, yeah. You know, he is the by far the most successful Beatle. Uh, Paul is faltering critically. Uh, John is doing sometime in New York City, which will be a disaster. Uh, Ringo is probably the second most successful Beatle, but George is regarded as one of the most powerful people in the music industry. And a lot of that is down to the relationship with Klein. If only the other Beatles had realised that they should have done what Paul did, which is to put out your divisive albums early yeah. and then get into the crowd-pleasing stuff instead of waiting a few years to drop your divisive album. Yes, well, exactly. But I, I always I always hear that Beware of Abco line as a kind of joke, mm-hmm. slightly sarcastic, you know, to Paul uh, or anybody who sort of thinks Klein is, is the bad guy. He's like, oh, Beware of Abco. You know, it's a kind of sarcastic uh, joke. But... The whole issue with the Bangladesh concert absolutely sours uh, the relationship. So by, by the end uh, of the North American tour in 1974, uh, he's, he's singing Sue Me, Sue You Blues, bring your lawyer and I'll bring Klein get together and we could have a bad time. He's hilarious, George. He's, uh, it's, it's the nuance that I love, you know. What, yeah, what, does, he, what does he mean exactly? Um, yeah, did every, by the way, did uh, every performer waive their royalties for the concert for Bangladesh? This is very interesting, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, um, I think this is really funny. Yeah, the only artist who didn't waive their fee was, checks, notes, Ravi Shankar. Nice. <laughs> Ravi Shankar comes with strings attached. Boom, boom. Um, Phil Spector got 50 grand as a producer. The concert for Ravi Shankar, then. The concert for Ravi Shankar. Just call it. So, you know, wh- where can Alan Klein get a break and maybe... We should take a break right now. See what you did there. Yay. End of part one. Intermission. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. End of intermission. Part two. Welcome back. So we're in the post-Beatle universe. We're in Alan Klein's post-Beatle universe. And then there's John Lennon and Alan Klein. The complicated relationship, he said, euphemistically. There's a love-in there. Mm, Yes, well, they never did a bed-in, though. No. No. Um, He's around a lot for John, and it's very personal. Um, Where do we we start? Because there's the famous story of the Imagine Sessions. Yes, that's a good place to start. Yes. Because it comes next in the notes. So it does. (laughs) Don't let light in on magic, Stephen. Klein, uh, as we say, has focused a lot of his attention on John. Get John and the others will follow or not. Yes. But he is still very much engaged with John. And there, there is a sense that he just wants to be John's friend. Yeah. You, you know, he, he does want to establish a close personal relationship 
with John. And there are all of those things about, you know, John and father figures. And Klein is undoubtedly another one of those characters in that mold. But Klein is there to the extent that uh, he's helping him write songs. Yeah, and uh, which lovely song does he write? Imagine all the people living life in peace. Is that one of his suggestions? He, he doesn't. He uh, helps him out with uh, How Do You Sleep? Ah, yes, the anti-Paul McCartney song. Yes, and mm. Paul commented on this as recently as 2018 in his GQ interview. Paul has kept the receipts on this. He has. Yeah. He absolutely has. But what I would say is there is definitely a shift in the narrative after 1974, 73, 74 about this song where John would start saying, oh, it's really about me or it could be about anybody. And then Paul's take on this is, well, it wasn't really John mm -hmm. that, that, that wrote some of the most scathing lines. It was Klein and John was under the influence of Klein. So there's Klein is getting the blame for this. And undoubtedly, he does write one of the most anti-Paul anti lines but it is also one of the best lines. <laughs> well, the line in question is the only thing you did was yesterday, which is the Alan Klein line. It's a very good joke. It's a good joke, but I would also put it to you that, you know, if, if somebody's only achievement in life was writing yesterday, fair play, that's a, that's a life well lived. Yes, but he's just saying, no, the only thing you did was yesterday. I know, it's a double meaning. Yes. The song yesterday yes. and the only it's thing you did was very in the past. Clever. And very funny. <sighs> yeah. I endorse this type of pun. <laughs> I think, you know, Paul, as I've said before, is the great compartmentalizer. Yeah. And he is able to psychologically explain away things. And I think that's totally understandable and forgivable because otherwise you would go insane. You would. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> but it's still a good line. And uh, Paul, Paul, Paul is still saying, you know, he says in the lyric book in, in 2021, in the song, How Do You Sleep? The line, the only thing you did was yesterday. And John said, hey, that's great. Put that in. I can see the laughs doing it. And I had to work very hard not to take it seriously. But at the back of my mind, I was thinking, wait a minute. All I ever did was yesterday. You're I, overthinking it, Paul. Yeah, he is overthinking it. Um, and more constructively, uh, apparently, Alan Klein is the man who said, take Child of Nature and go away and turn it into a better song. Yes, Klein sort of wrote it. Did he write it, though? He just sort of said, "Go, you go and write it. Yeah. So the story is, this is when they, John and Yoko are in the St. Regis hotel and Child of Nature has been kicking around since 1968 and uh, Klein just says this lyric is not up to scratch you need to revisit that now can you imagine Brian saying that um, you know, no I suppose I can't Brian once did, there is a story where Brian did once you know venture an opinion quite good perhaps take do it again chaps and John just said you stick to what you do and we'll stick to the music. So there, there are no circumstances, I think, in which one in which Brian would have felt able to say that lyric is terrible or that John would have let him away with it, much less taken it on board and, you know, written, rewritten the song. And the, 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 this all leads to, obviously, the, the Imagine album comes out. Um, it's recorded in earlier 71, comes out in September 71. But in between, there is this intersection between John, Alan, George and the concert for Bangladesh. Yes. Uh, and this is contentious. This is contentious because not only will George and Klein fall out in the aftermath, but in the run-up to Bangladesh, Klein sides with George when George is sort of saying to John, would you like to come and play at Bangladesh? And John is saying, yeah, me and the wife would love to come and play at Bangladesh. And George is saying, no, no, just you, not Yoko. Klein is signing, siding with George here and saying, no, no, Yoko should not be there. Uh, so John feels that is mm -hmm. a betrayal. Also, sometime in New York City is coming up uh, and Klein doesn't like this album at all. It comes to this notion of at the very start of the Alan Klein, John and Yoko relationship, we mentioned way back in 400 Alan Klein episodes yeah. ago that John... Um, that that Alan took Yoko seriously, yes, and promised her a you know a, an art exhibition in mm -hmm. Syracuse as part of that, which happens at the end of seventy one, and it's a recurring motif because when David Geffen is signing John and Yoko in nineteen eighty for Double Fantasy, David Geffen seems to get the gig because he takes Yoko seriously, yes, and there seems to be a a bit of a a point around this time where. You know, John and Yoko are in New York. They are developing into sometime in New York City. John and Yoko, this is a John and Yoko album and Alan isn't really buying it anymore. No, uh, he is not happy with the political slant of this album and not happy that it's a combined 
John and Yoko album. But th- up to this point, they've each been putting out their 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 solo mm-hmm. records. Now, it's not just that Alan Klein has good taste in music. It's he's a businessman and he knows that the royalties are set up in such a way that if every Beatles album, including the solo albums, hits a certain level, then it's going to trigger an uplift in the royalties. And he is absolutely petrified and rightly so that sometime in New York City is going to scupper that uplift in royalties. And the uplift is it has to hit 500,000 units. Yes. Which... In 1972, should have been easy for a Beatles album. I don't think any album sells half a million units anymore, yeah. but that should have been a, a, a given. Yeah. And Sometime in New York City does not do well. No. Shockingly badly. Shockingly badly. Uh, it gets the number 48 mm. in the States. Uh, the measure of its worth is it sold less than wildlife. Jason. Well, it's not as good as Wildlife, Stephen. That's, wow. that's a given. <laughs> it is reviewed by Rolling Stone and they say this is artistic suicide. Now, there is another theory, you know, we, we, we should venture into the world of conspiracy theory podcasts, that the label might want to sabotage it. They might have wanted to stop the uplift from happening and said, here's an album that we don't have to get behind for obvious reasons. Was, like, I can't imagine they could have made a few differences to get it over the half million yeah. sales. Well, before its release, Klein has gone to the record company and, and re- essentially renegotiated and said, look, this is not a John Lennon album. Yeah. This is a John Ajoko album. And uh, so therefore, it should be discounted from the contractual mechanism. And they they agree. And Pete Doggett in his book said, you know, this demonstrates a degree of foresight that Lennon never gave Klein credit for. Mm-hmm. So John just sees this as a betrayal. You know, this is my artistic statement and you are not getting behind it. You are not supporting it. And John, you know, not being a breadhead, is not interested in the money. But Klein knows that, that Lennon is ultimately interested in the money. And Klein is certainly interested in the money. The argument you could make for Klein is that Klein is in showbiz. You know, he started yeah. off making money from pop hits and he's not... He's, he, and I think he's been quite open about this. He's not there to, you know, fund artistic whims for the sake of it. He's there to get records on the charts. And I think he sees it as his end of the deal that the people he works with give him the hits, you know, the, yes. give, him, give him the stuff that he can then get into the charts. He's not, he's not a magic no. uh, man able to get anything into the, the top 10. No, no, absolutely. And as I, I, think, I, I think he does deserve credit for seeing, for having the foresight to see, right, well, this record is likely not to, to, to sell. And bear in mind, it's not just that this record, if it was counted, would affect John's royalty. It affects the Beatles' royalty yeah. collectively and individually. So they all uh, lose out, um, if, all four Beatles. Yeah, so it is important. Um, but I, I guess what it means is that across you know, the Beatles, particularly from George and John, there is this kind of souring yeah. of you know, the relationship with Alan Klein for all the things that he has done. And I do recognise that he has done things, that they are in a very different position uh, at the start of 1973 than they were at the start of 1969. Unfortunately, one of those positions is that although they are wealthier, they are not together. But that's another discussion. Um, But the point is that when we get to the end of their contract time with Alan Klein, and it's important, we mentioned this in the earlier episodes, that he never... He never sort of involved himself in such a way like he did with the Rolling Stones where they couldn't get out of it. I think he felt that this could be a stepping stone for him to get to that point. But it was it was to be his undoing in a way because it it gave an opportunity to to walk away at the start of 1973. Yes. So the contract expires. Uh, So it's not that the Beatles bring it prematurely to an end. It just it, it is due to expire in March 1973. And early in the year, John George Ringo all basically serve notice saying we're not going to be renewing the contract. Um, so you look at the context of that and yes, they're all benefiting greatly from this uplift in royalties and Klein has done that, but they're not actually, they don't have access to this money mm-hmm. because the receiver is still there. Yes. So they're getting, if you like, a an alliance, a kind of stipend is being paid by the company. Klein is, is it essentially lending money Mm-hmm. Uh, to to George, to Ringo, and particularly to John and Yoko, because they just keep doing their thing. They keep doing, you know, Yoko's films and art productions and all the rest of it, and they need money. And Klein is lending them money. And we don't particularly know whether that was a 
joint effort between John, George and Ringo? Did they come to that conclusion separately or were they having meetings? We don't really know. We don't really do know. I mean, it just seems to be, uh, say, there was a souring of the relationship between John and Klein and between George and Klein to, to greater or lesser extents. Ringo, I think, just is going along as Ringo does uh, with, the, with the majority view. But there's an, an, an interview uh, that uh, John gives, I think, in April 1973, when they ask him about Klein. And he says, quote, let's say possibly Paul's suspicions were right and the timing was right, mm. end quote. Now, there is a lot of emphasis put on that remark that John and by extension, George and Ringo, suddenly the scales have fallen from their eyes and they see that Klein is an absolute shyster and they have to bring this relationship to an end. I, personally, I think there's a lot of emphasis put on that and probably too much emphasis on that one line, particularly when we come on to look at the subsequent relationship with Klein. Well, when they say, you know, the timing was right, the timing was just the timing. The contract ran its course. So, yeah. it, you know, there wasn't like, oh, the, it's now time to fire this guy. It just happened. I, um, think, I think they had realised that for so long as Klein was there, mm -hmm. there was never going to be a settlement with Paul. Yes. You know, Paul was very focused on Klein. Mm -hmm. You know, all of the interviews that he, he was giving uh, are about Klein. The court case, the litigation revolves around Klein. Klein has this antipathy to the Eastmans, which is, uh, you know, reciprocated in spadefuls by, by the Eastmans. And I think there is a sense, this has been dragging on now for three years. As long as Klein is there, yeah, we will not get a settlement. The other aspect of this is by John, George and Ringo blaming Klein, it allows them to reach out and restore a relationship with Paul because it's easy for the four of them then to say, well, it wasn't really the four of us that fell out. Mm -hmm. It was all because of the guy over there. Yeah, it's hugely pragmatic and yeah. it works to their ends. And it probably was the right decision, you know, irrespective of the, the kind of the outstanding legal uh, implement uh, you know yeah. inferences of what would mean from walking away from Klein I guess Klein had done all, everything he could do and we're probably a lot more used to uh, in in later years for for successful groups where individual members have their own individual representation and you know the group has a separate kind of representation and people are able to work under an umbrella so to yeah. speak but this is all uncharted territory for how yeah. these business enterprises are supposed to um supposed to run so um so is that the end of the episode? It's March 73 and Alan Klein goes off into the sunset on his blind man horse. And uh, so we're available in all the usual places. Is that no? Is no, there no, no? There's, there's more, more to go on. Okay, there's more so to come. where where do <laughs> what happens next? We've done I know we said there'd be cross-referencing to other episodes. We've done two episodes on 1974. Yes. And 1974 is the year of walls and bridges, which has references to Alan Klein? It maybe? does have references to Alan Klein. Uh, this is not an album that I like particularly. But the two things uh, that about Walls and Bridges are, there are lots of little Beatle references mm. uh, in, in lyrics and backing vocals and uh, guitar sounds that are like George and he's using riffs that he lifts from, uh, from Band on the Run. But there is that song, Steel and Glass. Yes. And uh, let's go through the lyrics of Steel and Glass. Uh, this is a story about your friend and mine. Who is it? Who is it? Who is it? Well, who? what rhymes with mine? Yes. <laughs> um, there you stand with your L.A. tan and your New York walk and your New York talk. Your mother left you when you were small, but you're going to wish you wasn't born at all. This is like a clue on 321. It is. It is. <laughs> if, so, there's a reference for the kids. So it's clearly about Alan Klein, your New York walk and your New York talk. And, you know, your mother left you when you were small. So we, this is this sort of being raised for a number of years in an orphanage is something that Klein used in his pitch uh, uh, to John. So but J John sort of says, oh, it's, you, you know, not about anybody in particular. Uh, he said, you know, it's been about a few people and like a novel writer, if I'm writing about something other than myself, I use other people I know or have known as examples. But it really isn't about anybody. I'm loath to tell you about this because it spoils the fun. I would sooner everybody think, who's it about? And try and piece it together. But for sure, it isn't about Paul and it isn't about Eartha Kitt. <laughs> so you can join the dots. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it still all goes to the courts, doesn't it? There's, there's the, the yes, because Klein does what Klein does and he sues. Well, he, he does, you know, and he, 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 he stakes his claim. So he sues 
the Beatles and Apple in New York because, as you say, he's been loaning money for them and he wants that money back. And then he sues them in the London courts saying that there's, you know, unpaid commissions. And this is, as we, you know, winding back to our first episode about Klein, this is the Klein paybook where he, you know, he's an accountant by trade and he's a, you know, a fighter and he goes in, pulls the books yeah. and, and sort of waves his fist in the air and say, you know, I've looked at these figures, they don't add up. And he's doing it for himself this time. Absolutely. So he, he sues Apple for 19 million in unpaid fees. Mm. Nice work if you can get it. <laughs> um, and and this, this, this kind of goes, th- th- there's kind of lots of parallel lawsuits going on. So there's the yes. money lawsuits. There's trying to dissolve the Beatles themselves lawsuit. There's the My Sweet Lord yep. issue, which is All going on, uh, which Klein is involved in. And we've discussed that in our My Sweet Lord episode where Klein is representing Harrison and then surreptitiously is on the other side of Harrison because he buys the rights to my, to he's so fine. Inexcusable. Although he doesn't go to the other side until after the contract ends. But it is still inexcusable that he's sort of playing both sides against the middle. But th- this this goes on and, uh, you know, we, we talked before about um, the, the meeting in a New York hotel room where, yeah, which turns up in the George Harrison uh, Scorsese documentary where they're all, you know, Paul yes. is signing and George is signing. John is supposed to be there, but sends a balloon, <laughs> as you would. Ringo has already signed because he won't come to New York because Klein is trying to serve him oh, right. with, with proceedings. And that's the reason why Ringo doesn't uh, kind of come to New York. So if, if that hadn't been the case, you know, potentially there was a, an opportunity to get them all in, in the same room. But ultimately, this drags on until January 1977. And in the end, it settles and Apple pay Klein $5 million in lieu of future royalties and as repayment of the loans that Abco had made to the Beatles. So Abco is funding the Beatles in the early 70s because the Beatles can't get the cash out of Apple. So Klein won. That, yeah, that, I, knew, I knew you were going to say that's a win for Klein. What a great businessman he is. Well, what I mean is, you know, he was funding the Beatles at this point. And uh, it, it wasn't that he ripped them off. It wasn't that he stole money from them. And in the end of the day, Apple had to repay the loans. And this, as you say, happens in January 1977. So I guess 1977 is a great year for Alan Klein. Yes, initially. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, it, in, in 1977, uh, uh, Klein and Abco's former head of promotion, Pete Bennett, are each charged with three felony counts of income tax evasion for 1970, 71 and 72 and related misdemeanor counts of making false statements on their income tax returns for each of those years. Uh-oh. We've all done it. Uh, speak for yourself. Um, yeah, so it's like Al Capone. If you can't get him for murder, get him for tax evasion. Well, that's exactly what I've written on the edge of my notes. The there words Al Capone. It's, there it's, you go. It's how you trip everyone up. So what, what you do, the IRS, uh, the Internal Revenue Service in the States, have been investigating Klein for years. And their claim is that Klein and Pete Bennett, who is the Apple promotions man, and he, he's the guy that we mentioned in the Sometime in New York City episode where he says, we're not, I'm yes. not going to promote this song, Woman Is. It's not going to happen. Yeah. Um, so they, they, they've been after them for years. And what they're alleging is that uh, the two of them are selling the giveaway promotional copies of Beatles albums, mm-hmm. which is, you know, again, I, we've all done it, Jason. Well, no, it, it does seem that, you know, for, for guys who are dealing in millions of dollars worth of product and turnover, mm. that they're being tripped up for something that maybe is tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah, nickels and dimes by, by comparison. Yeah. So he, Klein is alleged to have received... $200,000. So when you think of what he has earned yeah. uh, from Apple, it's, it's yeah, small beer. Um, and the uh, Pete Bennett pleads guilty and then he becomes a witness against Klein. <sighs> There's no honour amongst whatever. <laughs> that's, that's not the done thing. That's not the done thing. Um, and Klein's first trial ends in a mistrial because the jury is deadlocked. And then there's a second trial in 1979 and he's finally found not guilty of the felony charges, but guilty of a single misdemeanor charge for false statements on his 1972 tax return. So again, not the biggest... No, teeny, teeny, tiny, <laughs> teeny, tiny... Uh, well, pay all your taxes, folks. Yeah. But it, it, in, as I said, in terms of the millions that they were dealing with, it's this very small thing to go through two years of trials yeah. and to deal with felony counts and all the rest to end up with a very small yeah. charge. But he gets jail time. He gets jail time. He gets fined $5,000 and two months in jail, which he serves in July, September 1980. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's unfair. I know that's what you're going to say. <laughs> well, it's it, it feels like somebody was trying to teach him a lesson. Yeah, whether it's the universe or some other kind of nebulous force. I think so. I think so. Um, it's probably worth mentioning that you know by the time we get to the late seventies. Um, Alan Klein is also known by the name Rhonda Klein. Rhonda Klein, mm. yes. Yeah, so John Belushi in the uh, mockumentary, if, if you, you will. will. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the Ruttles all need is cash. And uh, the most feared promoter in the world, De Klein, is so intimidating that they throw themselves out windows rather than meet him. <laughs> um, but yeah, it is. I, I'm surprised Klein didn't sue. Um, well... He was probably too busy uh, in the courts at that point, probably. trying to stay out of but prison. What, what we should say is that he is still on good terms with John during yes. this period. So, you know, we, we talked about uh, the, the Come Together, You Can't Do That episode. He's hanging out with John. He's at his birthday parties in 1975. He's trying to sort of insert himself into the Morris, Morris Levy litigation. Yep. Uh, so John and he are still, still hanging out. And... There is this kind of notion that Klein just wanted to be liked. He just yeah. wanted to be part of the gang. And I, I, he never, I think he felt himself that he was doing right by them wherever possible. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And that, that is, now that you say that, that is mercilessly parodied in the Ruttles. In what way? Where you have Klein saying, you know, but people say these things, but I love you. I really do. And I only <laughs> want to do what's best for you. And the camera pulls back and he's looking into a mirror. <laughs> um, I'd forgotten so, that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're. I think you're right. And uh, there is a sense that he absolutely just wanted to be John Lennon's best friend. And you know, we we all want to be John Lennon's best friend. Well, I guess we 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 do. And um, and and there is. I know we should probably save it for the end. But there is that story that when John and Alan were going through all their bits and pieces, that they really just wanted to be friends. Be friends. Yeah. yeah. You going to tell that story now? <laughs> oh, you swore the end. I'll save it for the wrap up at the end. Um, but there is there is a sort of afterlife to the Klein tale. Yeah. So in 1980, he starts working for uh, Phil, 1988, Phil Spector. He starts managing Phil Spector. Well, they deserve each other. Yes, it's a match made in heaven. <laughs> uh, yeah, but he does like, because uh, I often wondered why uh, Abco is mentioned on Phil Spector records like the Back to Mono box and all the rest and yeah. it actually it's not something that goes back to the 50s and 60s it's something that goes back to the late 80s where Klein comes in and does that thing he does goes through the books tidies everything up gets everything under on one umbrella oh it's not Phil's umbrella it's my umbrella but I'll yeah. let you put your your yeah. Phil label on it. Yeah, but he gets him. He gets him a settlement. So this is essentially the same thing about unpaid royalties. Yeah, which, as you say, is is Klein's specialist subject. Well, there's the other story of the Verve, of course, in Bittersweet Symphony, yes. which was Alan Klein sticks his oar in there. Where um, I'm, I'm sure people listening know the Verve song Bittersweet Symphony, but the uh, orchestral backing is not an original orchestral backing. It comes from an Andrew Lou Goldham orchestra recording of the Stones, The Last Time. Yes, and weirdly, weirdly, it's the the hook is from the orchestral arrangement. It's not. It's not. Yeah, from the, the song, the the Stones arrangement. No, but 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 yes. Uh, so um, uh, Klein wanted the royalties. Well, yeah. So for for many years, for about twenty years, every time Bittersweet Symphony got played, it was royaltyed as a Jagger Richards song, even though, as you say, they didn't write the riff, but yeah. the riff was attached to a song of theirs. Now, about five years ago, Jagger and Richards corrected this and have re-diverted the royalties back to Richard Ashcroft from Bless. the verb. Bless. So I guess they creamed off as much as they could. Well, I think it was Klein was creaming the money off. I think this is the point. It was Klein was getting uh, the well, money. Klein probably still gets some publishing cut, yeah. but actually the actual songwriting credit mm. was changed to Jagger Richards. You know, that great Jagger Richards classic, of Bittersweet Symphony. Of course, of course. <laughs> um, but they now divert their money back to Richard Ashcroft, which is a nice, uh, a nice um, ending to the story. Is it? I don't know. Where, what does it all mean? What does it all mean? What does it all mean? Well, you know, I'm... I'm not saying Alan Klein was a saint, heaven, okay. heaven forbid. No, but uh, what I am saying, he was the right man for the job at the time. He came in. Hmm, that's a stretch. Sorted <laughs> out. Well, he came in and he sorted out Apple. Yes. And if you think about it, you know, Paul signed the royalty deal. Uh, you know, it was the Eastmans that scuppered the ATV stock deal. If Paul had gone with Klein. Mm -hmm. How would Paul have been worse off? Klein got nothing mm -hmm. from Apple that he wasn't entitled to under his contract. And in the end, he had to sue and he got five million back. So the court 
wouldn't be saying, yes, Alan, you've stolen some money and here's some more. He went uh, to court in the mid-70s to recoup the money that he had lent the Beatles. If there hadn't been a receiver put in place, Klein would have been running it. Now, maybe he would have then run Riot and yep. uh, stolen the publishing and done all of those things. But there's no indication that he did anything wrong. He's not guilty of any crime, except he didn't fill in uh, his tax returns in 1971. I think what is interesting about the story when you go into it, to the nothing is real level of detail, is that Klein and his interactions with the Beatles was very different to how he interacted with other acts. Yes. I don't know of any other instance where, um, you know, Klein took one of the acts he worked for to court and got five million out of them. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and he probably made some concessions to the Beatles instead of you know, figuring out some ironclad contract back in 1969. He made concessions to get the Beatles because they were the biggest yeah. prize. And it's possible that they, did they outfox him or did they get what they could out of him? Did they use Alan Klein? Well, I think they were happy for Klein to do what he did. Yes. So three quarters of the band were with him. And to that extent, Klein's strategy of if I get John, mm -hmm. the others will follow. You know, he was almost right. And if it hadn't been for the fact that Paul was already, I suppose, literally in bed with the Eastmans, um, you know, perhaps that is what would have happened. But certainly the, his appointment drove a wedge between Paul and the others. Was this client's fault entirely? I think the Eastmans probably have to shoulder a little bit of the blame there. He, he was sharp. He was a crook. Uh, he'd certainly treated previous clients very badly. I think... You're right in saying he treated the Beatles differently. Mm -hmm. He did want to be John Lennon's friend. And I think he genuinely admired the band. He did help George launch his career. The whole Bangladesh, my sweet lord, shenanigans is inexcusable. But I think there's a much more nuanced picture of Alan Klein. I mean, I'm overstating the positives, but I think my hope would be that people might have a more nuanced view of Klein rather than this just instinct. You know, he's a crook, he's a thief. He split the Beatles up and stole all their money. And if Paul hadn't saved them, they'd all be begging on the street. There you is, said it. That's the truth. Yeah. You know, but that's the narrative. <laughs> no, that is the narrative. I, and, I, and the further we get away from, you know, the breakup and the court cases and all the rest of it, that just becomes the narrative. The last man standing controls the narrative. Yeah, and, and it is hard to know, you know, what would have happened if there was another set of events, if the Eastmans had been signed on. You know, they, they did want to get rid of the distractions, concentrate on music, and they did set up a template that eventually became MPL. And MPL's doing all right for itself, you know, you could argue. So uh, a, a Beatles version of MPL might not have been the worst thing in the world. And as Paul likes to point out, they didn't want to cut, you just paid them a commission yeah. for everything they did. You know, businessman right to the very end. Um, but it's it's... It was just a, as the, the the book says, a series of unfortunate events, really, that magnified certain bits and pieces that they couldn't really be coherent, as coherent as they'd been for the previous 10 years before 1969. I think so. I mm. think that's it. That's it. And, uh, you know, Pete Doggett says, with the possible exception of Alex, Magic Alex, uh, he, he's received a more damning verdict from historians than any other character. Yeah. And I think that's unfair. But I guess part of that, though, is to do with how Alan Klein is viewed through his relationships with every other artist, and particularly the Rolling Stones. Yes. I think you can't, you know, our main interaction as music buyers in the 21st century is seeing Alan Klein's name all over, let's face it, a rather shoddily managed 1960s Rolling Stones catalogue. And that, to me, is a reminder of, oh, my God, if, that, if, if, if the Beatles catalogue had been abcode the way Alan Klein's catalogue had been abcode the, the way the Rolling Stones catalogue had been upcode, we'd be in a bad way, really. We would be in a bad way. But that, that arises out of pre-Alan Klein machinations on the Stones publishing, I think. We've he sort of inherited that. He, you know, he bought that. He was able to get it, it all already in one done. go. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. Was already, it was already done. But there's, uh, Pete Doggett has a collection of, a uh, selection of uh, discussions or descriptions. One of the Beatles colleagues said he was a tough little scorpion for another he was a fast talking dirty mouthed sloppily dressed grossly <laughs> overweight uh, Alistair Taylor said he had all the charm of a broken lavatory seat mm, nice 
So, see, and Doggett says, so consistent was the vilification that when biographer Philip Norman merely described Klein as a tubby little man, it sounded like a compliment. <laughs> um, you know, let's, so, so the legacy is, you know, let's, let's have a, let's have a quick rundown. The pros, cleaned up Apple, tick, yep. struck a good royalty rate, mm-hmm. tick, devoted to John, yep. uh, laid the basis for their solo careers, maybe mm-hmm. not Paul's, um, made money, got cash flow going, but diverted maybe through himself or good whatever and the other thing we haven't mentioned but we mentioned in another episode is that the Red and the Blue albums are yes. an Alan Klein event yeah which is you know people of a certain generation it's their gateway in yeah so you can go back to our compilations episode all the way back in season one uh, about that um, but the cons are this wedge between Paul and the others certain crookedness that you know he wasn't the most level man in the room um, but that's not a, an unknown quantity in the music business no. you could say um, and then the whole kind of Bangladesh mess uh, wasn't helpful. No, no, no. unhelpful. Uh, un- unhelpful. Un- un- yeah, exactly. Um, tell, if- tell the anecdote now. <laughs> well, no, I, I, I think. Uh, I, I look. I think in retrospect, the the Beatles. You know, Paul is not going to be shifted on his opinion of Alan Klein. No. You know, Ringo in anthology era talks about. You know, he thought he was a brash. I'll get it done, lads. Lots of enthusiasm. A good guy with a pleasant attitude about himself. So he's, he still has a bit of a rose-coloured glasses about it. And George says, you know, because we were from Liverpool, we liked people who were street people. Lee Eastman was more a class-conscious sort of person. You know that famous uh, street people like uh, Brian Epstein? Yes. Uh, well, I like the fact that George there essentially blaming John and Paul. You know, John says, you know, in retrospect, you know, we liked the way he dealt with the Rolling Stones, but that seems odd. Well, he also said uh, he had some of the cleanest polo neck sweaters I've ever seen. (laughs) That's you base your business decisions on knitwear. It's a very smart way to do things. Um, And I I do like, you know, Derek Taylor, who said, you know, he was supposed to be intimidating, but he didn't intimidate me because I felt he was like a lot of heavy people. He was vulnerable. Frank Sinatra was vulnerable when I met him, too. And, uh, you know, he, he sort of, uh, he has a hard reputation, but, um, you know, uh, Derek Taylor saw through it. Well, you know, Derek did, in in his books, he does sort of do a sort of mea culpa because he's the man that sort of let him in to the organisation, yes. ultimately. Um, but I do think that is very perceptive of Derek to sort of say, well, you know, behind this kind of brash, there's just a vulnerable person that, as you say, wants to be liked. Isn't that everybody, Stephen? We all want to yeah, be Yeah, I know. Alan Klein just needed a big hug. Um, the anecdote. <laughs> the anecdote. <laughs> we've been building up towards. Do the anecdote. Do the well, anecdote. Well, no, the, 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 there was, the issue was that the Beatles had this settlement with Alan Klein, isn't that right? Yeah. But there was also separate agreements and sub-agreements. And one was a John and Yoko agreement that went on a bit longer that needed to be settled legally yes. with bag productions. That's right. And Klein, at the time that that settled, did say this is all down to the tireless Henry Kissinger-like uh, tenacity and negotiating skills of Yoko Ono. It's a mm. nice thing to say. That is a nice, well, yes, depending on where you stand with Henry Kissinger, I suppose. So the deal is about to be signed. So it's all been reduced to papers. You know, the lawyers are looking at the big fee. And at the very last minute, Klein says uh, to John Lennon's lawyer, I have an extra condition. I want John to take me out to dinner. <laughs> and the lawyer kind of is thinking, oh my God, you know, all these months of negotiation and this is all going to fall off the table. So the lawyer sort of rather sheepishly goes to John Lennon to tell him. And supposedly before the lawyer could say anything, John says, look, can you just tell Alan I'd like to take him out to dinner when all of this is settled? Ah, uh, they were soulmates after they all. They were soulmates after all. And Fred Goodman uh, in, in his biography, he says, uh, I love this quote, in a lifetime of searching for love and validation, the closest Alan Klein had come to a soulmate was John Lennon. Uh, fade in, the romantic music, you know, <laughs> the end gets the scrawled end. across the screen. Yeah, uh, it's a hallmark uh, ending. It is a hallmark ending. Oh man, I don't... Um, you feel sorry for all those nasty things you've said about Alan uh, Klein. I'm going to have to go to confession. Um... But what do you think, everybody? Please don't write in and tell me what you think. <laughs> no, do. Just just send it all directly to Stephen. Um, I, I think there isn't a, a sixth Alan Klein episode h- hanging about in the wings. I can neither confirm nor deny. Oh, God almighty. Um, I, I think we've made a decent stab at trying to sort out Alan Klein between I think so. five episodes and two Let It Be episodes. I'm satisfied. Are, uh, finally, well, 
that's good to hear. But what do you think, everybody? We remain available in all the usual places. Um, at Beatlespod on Twitter, the Nothing Is Real Facebook group, www.nothingisrealpod.com is the website. And don't forget that we're on Acast Plus with lots of bonus episodes and treats uh, for people. If you want to sign up there, um, you can do so via the website. And we thank everybody who's already there. But for now, my name is Jason Carty. My name's Stephen Cockroft. And this has been Nothing Is Real. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.